If you enjoy listening to this podcast, we ask you to consider supporting it by making a one-time or reoccurring donation. Visit Mayflower's website at www.mayflowerucc.org and click on the Donate tab in the menu. Donations made to Mayflower's Communications Fund are tax-deductible and help ensure that this podcast is available. Thank you for your support. The sermon you are about to hear was preached at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church in Oklahoma City by the Reverend Dr. Lori Walkie, senior minister at one of America's premier liberal Protestant pulpits. At Mayflower, we are an open and affirming peace and justice church where we believe religion should be biblically responsible, intellectually honest, emotionally satisfying, and socially significant. We go now to the pulpit of Mayflower Congregational UCC Church of Oklahoma City and to the preaching and teaching of Reverend Dr. Lori Walkie. Good morning from Mayflower Congregational United Church of Christ on this Easter morning here at Mayflower. No matter who you are or where you are on life's journey, you are welcome here. Will you bow your heads with me? Our children are very good at saying the quiet part out loud, Holy One. Did Jesus really come back to life, they ask. They don't even whisper when they wonder it aloud. Not all of us were raised that way. We were told to keep our questions to ourselves because questions are the stuff doubt is made of. None of us would have dared to ask Did Jesus really come back to life? But thankfully, our children know better. They know that the opposite of faith isn't doubt. The opposite of faith is certainty. If we are without doubt, there is no need for trust. So we ask them, well, what do you think? If your head and your heart are equal partners in faith, what are the possibilities? And then we talk about how faith, hope, and love abide, these three, and the greatest of these is love. And we know a love so sturdy, so everlasting, so true, that even the grave could not hold it. Did Jesus really come back to life? Well, as he said himself, Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry and gave you food, or thirsty and gave you something to drink? And when was it that we saw you a stranger and welcomed you, or naked and gave you clothing? And when, when was it that we saw you sick or in prison and visited you? And the king will answer them, truly I tell you, just as you did it to one of the least of these who are members of my family, you did it to me. Give us hearts to see, Holy One, that we might recognize who is right in front of us. We pray in the name of Jesus, the one who was, who is, and who is to come. Amen. Our scripture lesson this morning comes from the gospel according to John, chapter 20, verses 1 through 18. 
Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Then Peter and the other disciples set out and went toward the tomb. The two were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent down to look in and saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen wrappings lying there, and the cloth that had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples returned to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had been lying, one at the head and the other at the feet. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. When she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you looking for? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabunai, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not hold on to me, because I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. Here ends the reading from our tradition. May God grant to us wisdom and courage for interpretation. They say that every preacher has a favorite gospel, one we tend to lean on, quote from, one we prefer. It's not that we don't like the other gospels, we just have a favorite, and you parents know what I'm talking about. <laughs> you love all your children the same, but there's a favorite. Oh, none of the favorites are here today. For preachers, the favorite gospel is almost never John, which we read from today. It's got a lot of symbolism, irony, and paradox are common. Instead of speaking in parables and short sayings about the kingdom of God, Jesus speaks in long, difficult monologues. As the beloved and charismatic Episcopal Bishop Shelby Spong admits, throughout most of my professional career, I was not drawn to the fourth gospel. Indeed, I found it most repellent. <laughs> the reason, 
Well, this gospel presented a Jesus whose humanity was no longer intact. John's Jesus claimed pre-existence. That is, he said he came to this earth from another life in another place. He was portrayed as possessing clairvoyance. That is, he knew about people's lives and their pasts before he met them. He was even said to know what they were thinking while he was talking to them. The Jesus of John's gospel also seemed to endure crucifixion without suffering. He displayed no anxiety about having to meet his destiny, no unwillingness to drink this cup, as he described it. Indeed, John has Jesus state that this was the purpose for which he had been born. The place where I experienced the most negative impact of the fourth gospel was in the role it played in the development of both the creeds and the imposed dogmas of the church. Because this book was thought to have spelled out orthodox Christianity, John's gospel also helped to fuel such dreadful events in, hum in Christian history as heresy hunts and the Inquisition. As the centuries rolled by, John's gospel seemed to make meaningful discourse on the nature of the Christ figure almost impossible. It is important to note, though, that Bishop Spong eventually came to feel differently about the gospel of John after doing a deep dive specifically into the forms of Jewish mysticism present in the first century. With that background, quite suddenly, John's gospel began to unfold before Bishop Spong as a work of Jewish mysticism, and the Jesus of John's gospel suddenly became not a visitor from another realm, but a person in whom a new God consciousness had emerged. And he would conclude that John's gospel is about life, expanded life, abundant life, but not in the typical manner that these words have been understood religiously. And all it took for Bishop Spong to come round to the Gospel of John was reading nothing but fourth gospel materials for five years of his life. <laughs> the arc of my preaching relationship with the Gospel of John is similar to Bishop Spong's Although I have not and do not plan to spend five years of my life studying it exclusively, instead, my heart was strangely warmed to the Gospel of John because of laundry. That's what did it for me, specifically the laundry that we read about in today's passage. John, or rather Jesus, leaves two piles of laundry in the tomb. This is what the disciples, or at least Peter and the disciple whom Jesus loved, find in the tomb on Easter morning, two loads. Not all of the gospels mention it. Matthew and Mark seem not to care, but both Luke and John make note of it. In fact, John goes into detail about this laundry. After Mary tells them that Jesus' body is missing, Peter and the other disciple race to the tomb. But as the text says, the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent down to look in and saw the linen wrappings lying there. When Peter catches up, he saw the linen wrappings lying there and the cloth that had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up 
and put in a place by itself. It seems as though whoever had taken off the wrappings had read Marie Kondo's book, The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up, <laughs> in which she explains how to clean and organize clutter and has specific methods for how to fold clothes as if they are origami to maximize space and spark joy. She has proper and efficient ways to fold t-shirts, long shirts, sleeves shirts, pants, sweaters, hoodies, shorts, socks, and even underwear. Apparently, Jesus' discarded clothes were so neatly folded that even in their distress, Peter and the other disciple notice. You know who didn't notice? My girl Mary. The main female character in the story didn't notice the piles of laundry in the tomb. That is the Easter miracle. <laughs> What's more likely than Mary not noticing the laundry is that she never saw it in the first place. The text isn't clear that she went all the way into the tomb. She simply saw that the stone had been rolled away and offers, as theologian Gail O'Day describes, what appears to be the only logical explanation of the day. Someone had taken Jesus' body out of the tomb, and it cannot be found. My guess is that if Mary had gone all the way into the tomb and seen the neatly folded linens, she would have immediately known this wasn't the work of grave robbers. I mean, after all, why would grave robbers have bothered to undress Jesus in the first place? And even if they had... Even more unbelievable would be that they had taken the time to fold the laundry. I mean, like, the grave robbers just don't seem like the type. Seeing those clothes, though, had a powerful effect on Peter and the other disciple. Verse 8 says that when the other disciple who reached the tomb first went in, he saw and believed believed what? John doesn't say. Little do Peter and the other disciple know that not only are they going to have to pull themselves together, they will need to pull together some very particular understandings about what happened, otherwise they will be accused of being heretics, disciples or no. Some denominations might have them defellowshipped, excommunicated, unaffiliated, only right beliefs allowed, the boys go home. Fingers crossed, they pull it together. The rest of the story, writes Barbara Brown Taylor, belongs to Mary. She is the one who saw the angels. She is the one who saw the risen Lord, who had gotten himself some new clothes, incidentally. Peter and the beloved disciple saw none of this. They saw nothing but a vacant tomb with two piles of clothes in it. They saw nothing but emptiness an absence, in other words, and on that basis, at least one of them believed, although neither of them understood. Any way you look at it, that is a mighty fragile beginning for a religion that has lasted almost 2,000 years now, and yet this is where so many of us continue to focus our energy on that tomb 
on that morning, on what did or did not happen there and how to explain it to anyone who does not happen to believe it too. Resurrection does not square with anything else we know about physical human life on earth. No one has ever seen it happen, which is why it helps me to remember that no one saw it happen on Easter morning either. The resurrection is the one and only event in Jesus' life that was entirely between him and God. There were no witnesses whatsoever. No one on earth can say what happened inside that tomb because no one was there. They all arrived after the fact. Two of them saw clothes. One of them saw angels. Most of them saw nothing at all because they were still in bed. But as it turned out, that did not matter because the empty tomb was not the point, and it still isn't. Indeed, the resurrection is the same as all of the other miracles stories in Scripture, which is to say, again, that the miracle is never the point of the story. That's still true, even on Easter, and perhaps especially true on Easter. But you already know that, which is why I know you didn't come here for a lecture about what did or didn't happen on this day 2,000 years ago. You are not here for a feel-good story. You are not here for a nice talk. We are here because our eyes, like Mary's so long ago, are filled with tears and our hearts are filled with confusion and worry, and our story reminds us that, like Mary, we can't be so focused on the tomb that we forget to speak to the gardener. We are here because we are anxious to see signs, to have some proof that hope is still alive. We are here because, like the disciples, it's possible to believe all things will be made right, even if we don't understand how exactly. We are here to tell this old, old story so that we might recognize that it is still happening all around us. Just look to Tennessee where the overwhelmingly Republican legislature are trying to bury two young black male representatives, Justin Jones and Justin Pearson, for their roles in leading youthful protests for gun control. The tactic seems to be working just as well for the authorities in Nashville as it did for the authorities who tried to bury Jesus. Jones and Pearson just keep appearing and reappearing just like Jesus, inspiring more people to become wiser, kinder, and more daring. As Representative Pearson so boldly and rightly claimed last week, the movement for justice can never die because the heart for justice can never be killed. It lives and beats in each and every one of us. It cannot die because we will not let it die. 
Or we, we can look to Wisconsin, where the powers and principalities heavily gerrymandered the state's political map, assuming that that would be enough to ensure total control over every single body, particularly pregnant bodies. And yet, those bodies would not stay put. They rose up all the way to the ballot box or we can look to Chicago, where the tough-on-crime candidate used the easiest campaign strategy in the book, which was to scare everybody. Be afraid. Be very afraid. Historically speaking, that has been very effective. And yet the people elected someone else, someone who believed that might does not make right, that more violence will only mean more violence, so there must be a different approach to public safety, one that centers economic and community development, more social workers and mental health professionals, swords into plowshares kind of stuff. Or look around and see the people sitting next to you, a congregation defined not by orthodoxy, but a collection of disciples united by orthopraxy, responding to the love of God as revealed through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth, a beloved community that practices an extravagant welcome, gives generously to others the grace we have so generously received, and resists by the power of love those forces in the world that seek to deny, oppress, free or separate us from freedom and dignity. People who believe that our faithfulness will not be measured by the purity of our beliefs, but by how well we do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly in the ways of Jesus. Friends, I know that in some ways, it feels like we are stuck in a loop of Good Friday and Holy Saturday, where all there is is pain and uncertainty and waiting. But the truth is that just like Mary, I am here to tell you, we have seen the Lord. Let's go tell the others. You've been listening to the preaching and teaching of Rev. Dr. Lori Walkie, Senior Minister at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church in Oklahoma City. More information about the church can be found at www.mayflowerucc.org or by visiting Mayflower's Facebook page. Worship services are every Sunday at 10 a.m with Sunday school classes for all ages at 9 a.m. Mayflower is located on Northwest 63rd Street in Oklahoma City, one block west of Portland. Thank you for listening.